Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Looking forward to this. Dueling questions with Joe Davis, Got Baseball Cards. Thanks, sponsors, Heritage Auctions, Huggins to Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Card, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Panini, Tops, and Upper Deck. I enjoy doing the dueling questions. So welcome to the show, Joe Davis, and uh, hit me with your first shot. All right. Great to be back, Jim. The question everyone's asking me, just in the last few days, PSA has announced they are suspending receiving new incoming grading shipments, except for their Super Express levels. They say they may not start back until July after helping launch BGS grading. And as we talk, you're sitting in front of a bunch of your own graded cards. So tell me, what's your projection of the fallout of how this is going to impact the graded industry as a whole with PSA basically going dark for the next three months and not taking any basic or even lower level submissions. It won't surprise you to know that I have a different take on it. (laughs) I think this is a very interesting choice. It's the opposite, Joe, I think of going dark. I think they're going toward bright lights. What they're doing is I think BGS has made serious inroads. Nat Turner's coming in and realizing that a lot of these public world record prices are in Beckett holders. If I were Nat Turner, I wouldn't like that. How are you going to fight that? And it's not by grading a bunch of base cards. So what he's doing is preferentially going to cut into these glamour cards that they have a bunch of there that are higher dollar for grading anyway, and get those out there into the market. So I think it's the opposite of going dark. It's putting a real spotlight on the fact that PSA is doing a lot of really expensive cards, not just vintage. Right. But is BGS going to benefit from that? I think so. Is is SGC going to benefit from that? But again, final point, the whole hobby is going to benefit from it. Okay, This is PSA making a business decision that I think is going to be talked about. And I see a silver lining in it for PSA as well as the others. So. Good point. Okay. My question for you is, we've talked about as Christians, I get a little heartburn When people say that my publications uh, back in the day, especially the the print magazines, the books, the almanacs, were the Bible, that Beckett was the Bible. That's a little daunting for me that I don't want to be sacrilegious. I don't want to be sanctimonious. I don't want to be presumptuous. So am I overly sensitive there or do you catch that drift? Yeah, Jim, as someone who believes the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, that would be quite a burden to bear if someone calls your publication the Bible, because no matter how good and how accurate anyone seeks to be, it's not going to be just based on timing. You can get as accurate as possible with data, but there are going to be inerrancies based just based on timing. So I think if they say your guides are now the online marketplace or online price guides are a guide, many people see the Bible as a guide to life, or some look at it as a set of rules. I don't see it that way. I see it as God's love letter to us. And I don't think your price guides are thought of as a love letter. However, uh, they are certainly thought of as, as a guide for people in the hobby. So in that sense, calling it the Bible for collectors, I get that point. But on the inerrancy side, yeah, I can see where that would be daunting to have that nomenclature attached to to your name. Yes. There's two attitudes about the Bible. You're representing the Orthodox Christian uh, approach that it's God's word and it's authoritative. But there's a bunch of people that think it's complete fiction. Okay. So I'm hoping that's not what they mean when they're saying yeah, that, let's hope not. that I was doing a fictional Bible because as much as possible, the price guides were based on uh, empirical data that we put together. But the Bible's a best-selling book in the world, most yeah. read book in the world. And I think that we aspired back in the day to have the most read 
and most purchased books about the hobby. I take it as a compliment in general. Okay. All right. Let's talk about fractional ownership. One of the other big rising trends in the hobby. I I was asked about this uh, on my own podcast. Chuck asked me about it and I was like, I would rather hold my own cards in hand rather than knowing I own one one hundredth of someone else's card. Do you think it's going to continue to grow, take off? And have you looked into it any? I think it's a positive development. I think it's going to continue to grow. My dilemma is how much of something do you need to own to be able to brag about it? If I own 100 shares of Apple, if I say I've owned 100 shares of Apple, I have friends that would say that's too bad that you only have so little. (laughs) Even though it's grown, you would have wanted to have more. So I think that's the dilemma here is that if you own 1% of a 52 mantle, is that enough to claim bragging rights? Yeah. People say, wait a minute, you never get to touch it. You own 1% of it, but it's gone up in value. Again, perceived value in the market that's there. But generally, I think it's going to allow some of these cards to be uh, talked about. But like I said, do you really want to increase your percentage of this thing that you don't own that you can't touch? Do I want to own 5% of it? Or do I get the same bragging rights if I own a market basket of 1% of every offering? I bet there's some people doing that. Then you can take a photo of it and show it on your Instagram and other kinds of places. So uh, on balance, I think it's really positive. I think one of the downsides is with the competition among the different groups doing that, I'm hoping they don't go down market. I want to see 100,000 and up cards uh, fractionalized, not $10,000 cards. Right. Um, That's part of the reason why people are into breaks, because it's a chance to get a card that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. But to buy 1% of a sure thing. So it's better than a lottery ticket because you actually own something. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you a situation. You tell me which one is more difficult. I've got two 40-year-old males. One 40-year-old male has never collected, never heard of collecting, and they walk into your shop one day because they somebody told them they ought to check it out, and they have no idea. They don't understand the lingo. They don't understand the process. don't see what the deal is, and they're asking you to make sense of it. Okay, I've got another 40-year-old. This person's twin, same thing, but this person has never been inside a church has never had any supposed spiritual interest. And that person doesn't show up in the card shop. They show up in the church and they're confused by the lingo. They're confused by the process. Now in the church, they have a new members class. What do card collectors have? Yeah, you're right. The one thing, it's funny you said, Jim, because one of my newest employees here teaches the new Christians class at my church. He helps those who have just asked Christ into their lives understand more about God's word and understand how to have a daily walk with God. You're right. We don't really have that in the hobby. We don't have an educational new collectors class. Maybe that's a great tutorial that we could put together, intro to collecting by, by Jim and Joe, but we don't have that. And yeah, it is a challenge. I do that all the time. My team does that all the time. Of tr- because there are so many new collectors pouring into the hobby. And p- one, part of our responsibility is to educate them and advise them. For collecting, I usually start with who are their favorite athletes? Who are their favorite teams? Have they seen any cards at all that they like? And try to simplify it for them and say, let's find something you're passionate about and let's connect the dots to something you can collect. If they love basketball, then I'll show them some LeBron cards or Jordan cards. If they love baseball here in Atlanta, I'll show them some uh, Ronald Acuna cards or Freddie Freeman or Chipper Jones, whatever. We try to simplify the process because, yeah, I've had people walk in our store and they see hundreds of different boxes on the wall. They were like, 
oh my goodness, I'm already overwhelmed and I've only been in here for two minutes. So our, our job as dealers is to educate and simplify the process so it's not so confusing. I agree, except that if there's no interest, you can't fan a flame that's not there. That Correct. would be true of the, of the church situation as well as the is uh, coming into a card shop. If there's no spark, then you're not going to get anything. They're just not going to get it. Well, I'll tell you how I handle that. If I go to a movie I really like and I'm excited about it, or I go to a restaurant I really like and I, and I, I immediately tell someone about it, it's the same way, whether it be Christianity or whether it be collecting. I, I can tell people what Christ has done for me in my life, how he totally changed my life and why I highly recommend it. It's a very simple way to put it. Same way with card collecting. When I tell someone how much I enjoy the hobby, then I can hopefully inspire them to become a part of the hobby. So there's definitely a parallel there. Okay, your turn. Let's talk about something we didn't see back in the day that was becoming more and more evident, and that's manufacturers selling direct to the public. I know a lot of dealers have concerns. Are direct accounts even going to stick around? Are manufacturers going to just start selling everything direct? Some will say if they can make more money, they have that right to do that. The other side of the equation is they need hobby shops to keep this hobby growing. If hobby shops don't get enough product to even satisfy their own customers, then they're in danger of hurting the stores. My hope is there's a the balance of nature. We need the, the ecosystem to be healthy and, and card shops. When we started our company, it was card shops first. We want to make sure nobody got a better deal than the card shops. I'd like to see that would be the case for the various card companies that they each do that in their own way. But is there going to be a direct consumer component forever now? That's out of the barn. That's not even unhealthy. The problem is it's hard for these manufacturers to, to evaluate who is more deserving. That was always the case, even when there were way more stores of who, who should get more product. Because are they flipping it? Are they really serving their customers? It's hard to do that legwork. You, you shouldn't do it strictly by reputation. Is there a way to figure out these are the card stores that are really serving the customers? Yeah. And so when they are, they need product to do that. And if they've got to go into the secondary market and buy it at really high prices or these Dutch auctions, which I'm not a big fan of either. But I think the card companies are experimenting. They're seeing that a lot of money's being made that they're not getting a, a share of. They're trying to find creative ways to get what they think is their deserving piece of it. I hope they keep experimenting, but they better be careful because the ecosystem has some delicacy. If you freeze out one of the groups, it's long-term bad for the industry. Yeah. I'm a big fan of card shops, yours in particular. Okay. What we've seen in 2020, 2021, we've seen a bunch of preteens come back into the hobby with a vengeance. They took time off. Okay. Here's my thesis, Joe. The original lapsed collector was Jesus. <laughs> Biblically, you hear about him at the age of 12 or 13. He's teaching in the temple. He's doing all this stuff. And then he goes dormant. We don't hear anything for approximately 17 or 18 years, just like collectors. Okay. They're really into it. Then they go away. They do other stuff. They get into their career. And then they think, okay, now I'm going to come back go public with the enjoyment of, of my mission. And what would Jesus do? Jesus took time off and then he came back and went full time into his uh, ministry after 17 years of dormancy. So maybe there's some biorhythm to that, that we're seeing that, again, the big boom in the hobby is 30-somethings and 40-somethings, I think, in the last year. I know I'm stretching, actually. I shouldn't ask you, how much am I stretching? 
But if it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for uh, collectors to come in. And, uh, Jesus didn't make apologies of, hey, I've been gone for 17 years. He said, hey, it's, it's my time now. Yeah, I see it scripturally. For whatever reason, God chose not to reveal to us what, what Christ's life looked like on earth during those years. It's not that he wasn't doing things. We just weren't given the privilege of finding out what they were. One day we will know. But you're right. His public ministry, we believe, started when he was about 30 years old. And you're correct that a whole lot of youth are coming back to the industry. I'm seeing so many who were like, hey, I collected as a teenager in the 80s or 90s. Now I'm back. I have money. And I'm like, welcome back. Can I roll out the red carpet for you? I have no problem with those who dropped out and they're coming back. And it's a whole new world for them. And it's completely different than what they experience, but they're used to buying stuff that was 50 cents a pack. And now it's 500 a pack sometimes. So it's basically starting over for them. And we're trying to re-educate and help them understand that the wide world of collecting that we live in today is very different than the one we had in the eighties and nineties. We love seeing them come back. And I've never thought about that parallel, but it's, yeah, you're right. A lot of people have taken off for 17 years or 20 years and they're back, but we're all welcoming them back. I know, but it gets even better because they're coming back expecting biblical math where <laughs> where things go 3,000% and 6,000% and a and 10,000%. And they're expecting miracles, which yeah. is you know not water into wine as much as they have this piece of cardboard that was $10. Now it's $100 and it's a miracle. It's actually not a miracle, but they've really caught a wave. The excitement of getting back into it has just been riveting. Yes. That's when you tell your friends. That's why Top Shot is catching on. People are telling other people, I'm going to check it out. And right. that's all we need. That's what happens in not just Christianity, any religion that somebody's, you know, thinking about. Uh, when you see someone's excited about something, you want to ask them a question. But card collecting is not necessarily the religion of our culture, but it's uh, certainly gaining a lot of traction. And, and we're big fans. We do preach balance. It certainly shouldn't be the only thing. And it probably shouldn't even be the main thing. But it, I think it's the world's greatest hobby. So absolutely. No, no comparison. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, listeners. Joe, thanks for your our participation and your good Thank insights. And be back again tomorrow. Do it.